unless someone's going to correct me, I think we got up to the end of footnote 12, so we'll pick up at the nevertheless. Is that correct? I didn't make a note of it, but I think that's where we left off. And if no one is going to correct me, then that's what we'll do. Okay, so I'll read the section and then we'll pick up after footnote 12. From all eternity, God decreed to justify all the elect, and in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit applies Christ to them at the proper time. Okay? So we're going to assign those verses for note 13. And who wants to take Colossians 1, 21 and 22? Who have I got for that? Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Okay, Lynn. Uh, and then Titus 3, 4 through 7. Who's got that? Caleb. All right, go ahead, Kaylin. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Okay, so we were alienated, it says, in mind, doing evil deeds, and we're reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So Christ assumes every part of what it is to be a human, so that means a mind, a human mind, a human nature, and a human body, and Christ reconciles us to himself. And why don't we do Titus 3 as well right away, and then we can discuss it as a package. If you want to, go ahead, Caleb. Titus 3, 4 through 7. Okay, very good. Thank you, Caleb. Okay, so there, this passage makes reference to regeneration. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this happens in time. Uh, and I know we have discussed this in class before, but this is something that we need to think through clearly. So we can say, and I think this was where the discussion ended off last week, we can say legitimately, if you are a saved, justified person here this morning, that means your name was in the Lamb's Book of Life before God created the world. Okay? So in the mind of God, in the decree of God, before our first parents sinned in the garden, God put his saving love on you. Okay? There was no you yet in history. And yet God put his saving love on you before there was a world, before there was a fall, before there was a gospel of Jesus in history, he put his saving love on you. So we can say legitimately that in, in that sense, salvation happened in eternity past. And then we can also legitimately say that because the actual transaction of the atonement took place in the year, let's say, 27-ish, 30-ish, somewhere in there, because that happened at that point in history, 
we can also legitimately say that's when we were saved. Okay? Because that's when this actual transaction took place. But in history, in actual time, in your experience, when that gets applied to you, happens at a moment of time in your life. Okay? For some of us, it happens so early that we don't remember it. For others, it's a crisis conversion that they clearly remember what time it was on the clock when this happened and what day it was and so forth. But this happens at, at a moment in time. There's an actual punctiliar moment in time at which it happens, whether you're aware of that time or not, but it gets applied to you. And what this last part is saying here is saying we are not personally justified until the Holy Spirit actually applies Christ to you at the proper time. Okay? So this is a hypothetical that I would say, because of what we know from Scripture, could not happen. God would never decree this to happen. But, hypothetical thought experiment. If God were to allow an elect person to die before their rebirth, again, an impossible hypothetical, but it's something to think about. If an elect person would die before their conversion, what would happen to them? Are they saved? Yeah? Yeah, this is a tricky one. Yeah. It's saying here they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit actually applies redemption to them at the, perf- at the proper time. So we are not... Hear me out closely on this because this isn't undoing what I just said. This is making personal application of what I just said. We are not saved by election. Okay? Did I just throw all my Calvinism and Reformed theology out the window? No, I did not. We are not saved by election. We are saved by repentance and faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just so happens that election decides who is going to do that. Okay? But we're not saved by uh, something we're unaware of, which is our name being in the Lamb's Book of Life. This gets applied at the moment of conversion. And so conversion is very, very important. And some strains of Reformed theology have forgotten this truth. There are strains of Reformed theology that um, have forgotten the importance of personal conversion. Okay? That, that has happened in history. That happened in the New England colonies uh, for a little while before the Great Awakening, that they forgot that conversion actually matters. They started to just assume, right? Well, I'm in a congregational church. My parents were baptized here, so we're just Christians because this is a Christian colony. Okay? This has happened, but we must never forget that in terms of actual salvation applied to you, this happens at a moment in time. Okay? Your heart is reborn. You put your faith in the gospel of Jesus. You repent for your sins. You put your faith in Christ. That's the moment when the Holy Spirit carries that atonement to you. Okay? And it happens in the providence of God, which is why he can have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the fall even happened. Okay? And I'll stop there. I'll maybe explain why why I think it's important that we keep this straight. 
Does that make sense or does that sound like a confusing jumble of thinking through this? What's that? It was a bit of a trick question. I do those periodically. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know one seminary professor who teaches, intentionally teaches heresy in his class just to see if anyone's brave enough to call him on it. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. I don't think that's a wise move. But, uh, but it was a bit of a trick question in one sense. Yes. Okay, does this make sense? We're not saved personally by election. Is that Matt? Matt's moving back to Roman Catholicism. My reformed convictions aren't strong enough. My ribs are turning into cartilage instead of rock. Is that what's happening? I, I'd say no. Ron. That's right. Yeah, so Ron is just saying, and I'm, again, I. Hold me to account here. I need to do better at repeating comments and questions um, because not everyone in this room can hear them and some listen after the fact or whatever. And so I've been reminded to make sure I repeat everything. So Ron's saying, but this is an impossibility and Ron is correct. This would never happen. Okay? If your name is in the Lamb's book of life and if Christ did die for your sins... A hundred percent certainty you will be saved at the right time. hundred percent certainty. There's no, there's not one person in the history of the universe for whom Christ died that that was not applied to them before, before their death. What we're trying to guard against and why I think this is important is to move away from this concept that has sometimes crept in of presumptive regeneration. Right, where it just is assumed, it's assumed everyone in church is necessarily saved. And I, we can historically look at how that happened and some of the fruit and so forth. But it's, as you can predict, that bears very bad fruit. Okay? If everybody is born regenerate, you can imagine what kind of fruit that bears. Um, and I'll stop there. Ron has a follow-up here. How do I apply that to an infant who dies? Um, I would say if it is an elect infant, then their moment of regeneration happened before their death, possibly in utero. Okay? I, I have no problem with someone being regenerated before they're born the first time. I, I think that can happen. Um, and my own personal understanding is all infants who die in infancy are elect. Those are the only ones who God allows to die in infancy. Not everyone agrees with that. Uh, that would be my understanding. Um, because, because regeneration is not a result of a choice you make. We've discussed this before too, but this is actually a key thing. It, once you start talking about the doctrines of grace within Arminian, they're going to say, oh, well, that's so cold. What about babies who die? Well, that plays right into Reformed theology. <laughs> Because in the Arminian system, you can't be born again until you choose to be born again. You make a decision to be born again, and then you're born again. No infant can do that. It, it, at the Council of Dort, or at the Synod of Dort, uh, the complaint was, your, your Arminianism keeps babies from any chance of heaven whatsoever. Because a baby can't choose. <laughs> right? And, and the Reformed side said, for us, that's not a problem. 
Regeneration happens when the Holy Spirit carries the atonement to you. And can he do that for an infant? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. Um, was there another hand here? I thought there was a second hand somewhere. Oh, Lisa. I'd want to parse that one carefully. So Lisa's question is, so we've established that an elect person will not die before they're converted. What about a converted person dying in a season of deep sin? Am I understanding you correctly? Okay. Is it possible? Well, I think, I think in one sense it's possible because all of us to some degree are going to die in a state of sin. Right? So all of us are not going to die in a state of perfect, sinless sanctification. So to some degree, that's not just possible, but it's actual for all of us. Where I'd want to be careful to answer that is, so if David, and I think the, the way I've framed it, you know, if David dies of a heart attack while in the act of adultery with Bathsheba, my understanding is he dies a justified man and go straight to heaven. Would God let that happen? Well, in David's case, he didn't. Is it hypothetically possible that a Christian could die in a season of sin? Perhaps. What I would not want to leave room for is, can a justified person go through a season of unbelief, maybe even anger towards God, you know, even a temporary rejection of God, a dislike of the Christian faith, can that happen? Yes. I think that can happen. Will God see to it that they are brought back to repentance before their death? I do believe so. Okay? So I'm, now I'm not talking about an actual act of sin. I'm talking about a state of hardness of heart, which I suppose we could say all sin is. But just because you see someone going through a tough season, maybe even in some ways rejecting God, doesn't mean that they have finally and fully apostatized. If, if they're a true believer, their heart will be softened. God will not let them persist in that to their death. So there will be fruit again before, before they would die, would be my understanding of it. And I think we kind of have to say that, because if we have to say your justification gets canceled when you're doing a serious enough sin, okay, well, how serious does the sin have to be? How do we know the difference between mortal sins and venial sins, right? We're not Roman Catholics, so we don't have a category like that. Um, and if we can lose our justification by bad behavior, then the question immediately becomes, how much good behavior do I have to do to be saved? I'd say in the act of a particular sin, yes, I think many Christians have died while sinning. Suicide is dying while sinning. It's murder. Okay? It's a serious sin. Suicide is a serious sin. 
is there forgiveness for that person? Well, if they have a regenerated heart, then yes, there is. They died while sinning. But uh, is this an ultimate apostasy or an ultimate and final rejection of God? Uh, I, don't, I don't think it is. Right? Because atonement is for past sins, present sins, and future sins, including the sin that put you in the ground. Right? So, uh, so I don't believe so. Uh, I do believe... I should maybe phrase that clear. I do believe Christians are capable of dying while sinning, even serious sins. What I don't believe is that Christians will die in a state of total unbelief. However weak, however feeble, uh, however tormented their faith gets, they will be holding to Christ somehow when they die. Right? And even, even if it's William Cooper-like faith, and I mentioned him last week, and I think Alistair Begg actually providentially was talking about William Cooper this last week as well, right? There was a man who wrote some beautiful hymns and some beautiful Christian poetry who was just tormented in soul his entire Christian life. There has to be room in the kingdom of God for people like that, okay? And, and in some sense, it's almost, there's almost a beauty in a person like that that doesn't exist for the bulk of us, all this torment, all this anguish, all this nipping at your heels and the darkness just surrounding you. And still you say, I am holding fast to Christ because he's actually holding fast to me. I think there's something beautiful and profound about the grace that comes down from heaven that's not reaching up. William Cooper had no strength to reach up. But Christ certainly had the strength to hold on to William Cooper in his pit of, you ladies are doing pilgrim's progress so in his slew of despond right Okay, so Tim's comment here is, is all sin equal in the sense of it is a rejection of God's law? Can we, can we grade sin on a curve? So is it less serious to die while speeding than it is to die from suicide? Right? You're sinning in both cases. We tend to think speeding was a lot less serious than self-murder is. Right? So... So what, what is that? Am I understanding correctly? Okay, so how would we answer that? All sin is breaking God's law, so is it all the same? How would we answer that? What's that? Yes and no. Yeah, well, I, I think this is a yes and no. Is driving 103 in 100 um, breaking God's law? Well, in a derivative sense, sure. God gives authority to the civil magistrate, and he posted the speed limit. So if you're disobeying the civil magistrate, you're disobeying God. True. Um, And yet, instinctively, I think all of us know that's less serious 
than cheating on your wife. So is that just an arbitrary thing in our conscience? Or is there something there? Okay, so, so Keith is framing Christians who sin as a reversal of sanctification, and like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God gives you more rope and you'll just keep taking it, right? You'll keep, keep running out with your sin until God pulls you back, or unless God pulls you back, so that's true. Jeremy? Could Ananias and Sapphira, okay, so that's another hypothetical. Could they actually have been part of the church? They died in sin. That much is true. I've never considered that one in particular. That would seem like a stretch, but I don't know. It seems different when God kills somebody. <laughs> it seems like that's another level of hardness, but... Yes, in terms of yes, that's fair. In terms of decree, God kills everybody, even those who die of a heart attack. Yes. Let me think about that one. Maybe. But to go back to the point here, okay? So I'm not going to hold anyone to the spot. Do would we all agree instinctively adultery is much more serious than breaking the speed limit? Do we all instinctively agree on that? Okay? Is that just an arbitrary thing that we think? Or do you think there's objective truth behind that? Ron. Speeding is man's law. Adultery is God's law. Okay. Correct. That's true. Yep. Yeah, I think what you're referring to, and I'd have to look it up too, but where it says anyone who sins, sins against the law or against nature, but the one who sins sexually sins against his own body, right? So that seems like a gradation. So sexual sin is serious in a way that certain other sins are not. I, I think we're moving in the right direction. Okay, Hugh. Okay, Hugh's, Hugh's moving us down the funnel. This is good. So Hugh's commenting, if you look at Old Testament law, you notice there's not one penalty for every sin. Right? There's a gradation of penalties. Right? So something like rape or murder or man-stealing is a capital crime. A kid stealing bread when they're hungry is restitution. 
for example, right? Yep. Okay, so, so even in God's law, there seems to be a gradation of seriousness. I, I would tend to agree. Tyson. Do we not grade in terms of consequences? I think that's certainly part of it. So Tyson's asking about consequences, and I think that is a significant part of it. Some sins are more destructive to society and to our neighbors than they are. Uh, a kid stealing a candy bar is a sin, but it doesn't have societal changing impacts. Whereas the legal acceptance of the sexual revolution can literally destroy, an, it is destroying an entire people. In terms of, yeah, the only pushback I'd give on that is, okay, um, because we're dealing with an obvious catastrophic sin. A man sins sexually against his wife, okay? He cheats on her. Um, and it, these two keep it a secret. Wife dies a week later in a car accident. She never finds out. The kids never find out. Nobody ever finds out. It's a secret. It was consensual. There are no consequences, Hmm. Okay, let's keep talking. Well, there'd be, <laughs> there'd be his conscience would eat him up. But there's not a ripple effect of consequences of the people in your life in that hypothetical scenario. Okay, Marina. Okay, same as Don. Lisa. Okay, we put another puzzle piece on the board. Good. Whoever commits one sin is guilty of them all. Bible verse, good. Don. Okay, so Don's pointing out there's a subjective element here, right? There's a subjective element to man's law. <laughs> Farmers follow every regulation in place. <laughs> Well, there's that, and so this is a, a discussion I, I saw a few weeks back in a forum. Uh, if you click, I agree, I have read and agreed to the terms of service, <laughs> after all you did was scroll, and then you check that box, and you say, yes, I read and agreed to the terms of service, and you just scrolled through it, not reading anything. Eighth commandment violation, or ninth, I guess, ninth? Think about it. Keith and then Jeremy. Okay. 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 So Keith, yeah, so Keith's pointing out. Um, that it says if we commit one sin, we're guilty of them all because we actually are, to some degree, guilty of them all. I think the first, it, the first, the first 
Okay. Okay, fair. Jeremy and then Don. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, absolutely. So Jeremy's saying, is the problem with sin that it's displaying our, our attitude towards God? And I'd say yes. Every sin is an act of treason. Every time God says do this and we do something different, it is cosmic treason. So every sin is cosmic treason, yes. So every sin is equal in that sense. Yep, very true. Marina, then burn. Right. So it would seem less serious than an intentional sin, right? A kid who steals bread because he's hungry and that's all he's thinking about is living for another 24 hours seems different than a high-handed sin. Yep. Okay, good. Burn, and then Howard. This is good. I'm, I'm, I'm getting warmed up for Miller. Last time I left a class, I tried asking a girl to prove to me what a chair was. And, well, it's got four legs and you sit on it. I said, well, so does my horse. And then the buzzer went. <laughs> and... I was trying to prove to her that apart from a biblical worldview, you can't even say what a chair is. But I'm going to leave this here because we're gone next week. I'll let this sit for two weeks. Okay, so Vern's pointing out, what verse was it in Acts 5, Vern? Acts 5, verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, yeah, so that would sound unregenerate. Satan's filling this guy. Howard and Dawn, and then we'll try to wrap a bow on this. Okay, so Howard's suggesting here the guilty of all doesn't mean you've actually committed literally with your body every one of the Ten Commandments, for example, but it does mean you're setting yourself on a course of self-justification, which is a complete rejection of everything the law contains. Okay, good, very good. Don?
And I think Don just brought it right to, the, right to the tip of the funnel. I think that is how we understand this. Is There's been plenty of discussion correctly, I think, that shows, even in a biblical conception, not all sins are equal. Some sins are legitimately worse than others. Okay? Uh, speeding is not to the same degree as murder or adultery. Okay? So your instincts aren't wrong. Um, the Bible itself demonstrates that there is degrees of seriousness of sin um, very clearly, okay? Uh, and I think Hugh's point that some sins, even in the Old Covenant, are capital sins, and some you just pay back. Some you pay back with 20% interest, and some you pay back with 5,000% interest. There is a gradation of seriousness of sins here, and how destructive they are both to your own soul as well as to society at large. So what does it mean when it says whoever is guilty of one is guilty of all? And I think these last two comments from Howard and Don uh, frame it because it's sending us in a direction against God's law. So picture, picture, if you will, you know those old barn windows that have usually four panes in it, okay? Picture one that has ten panes in it, okay? So this is a ten-pane window, and you commit a sin against one of the Ten Commandments, and so let's say you chuck a rock through one of those ten panes. Is the window broken? Yep. Okay. Is it broken because all ten panes are out? No. It's broken because it's broken somewhere. The window is broken. Okay. One act of sin, one act of cosmic treason is enough to damn a person for eternity. Okay. If you're guilty of one law, you're guilty of them all. You're damned. You're on the wrong side of God. You're on the wrong side of eternity. Okay? One sin, whether it's a little white lie or whether it's an act of murder, one sin makes you an enemy of God. Okay? War has been declared between you and God, and, and this is true of any sin. Any sin is saying, I know better than the God of heaven who crafted me. I declare war on you, God, because I hate you. That's what sin says. Sin is a hatred of God. And so whether it's a small one or a big one, you've declared war on God. Okay? You deserve the lake of fire for eternity. That's, I think, what it means. If you've, if you've committed one, you're guilty. You're just on the wrong side of God. You're just guilty. You're guilty. But I don't think that that teaches that all sins are morally equivalent. Right? Um... I would not talk to a teenage boy. I don't think it's a case of church discipline if a guy drives 103 in a 100 zone. Okay? Um, if someone is guilty of tax fraud, yeah, that's probably worth the elders going to talk to someone. Okay? We know this instinctively because the law of God is written on, on our hearts. So I don't think we have to say that all sins are equal in terms of consequence or that they're equal in terms of how much they strike to the heart of God's law. But we do have to say they're all equal in their ability to condemn your soul to hell. And any sin does that. 
Okay? That's how I would try to, to close this off. So in that sense, in terms of justification, there is no such thing as a small sin. All sin is a declaration of war. Okay? But in terms of consequence, the acceptance in Canada, let's say legally, of the sexual revolution in 1969, when adultery and sodomy were decriminalized, literally just steps on the oxygen hose. That literally destroys a nation, is destroying a nation. In a way uh, that somebody blowing through Blumenort going at 80 does not destroy civilization. Okay? So they're, they're well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it does take us to speed through Blumenort because there's always a cop waiting at the hill. But um, that's where I'd want to end this off. That, that would be my understanding of how this works, that we can simultaneously say, yeah, we know instinctively and from Scripture not all sins are equal, and yet all sins are equal of condemning us. If you're guilty of one, you may as well be guilty of them all. That's how I would understand this. And so to close off, I'm curious if that makes sense. Does that just lead to more follow-up questions? Does it sound like I'm trying to sell you a bill of goods? See, and I think through discussion and everyone putting a Another piece on the table, I think that helps to fill in a coherent picture. Does that make sense? Are we good to leave it here? Okay, it is 10.17, so then I think let's close in prayer, and then we can get ready for church. Father God, I want to thank you for what you're doing here. Thank you for this discussion. Thank you for each one that's here. Lord, and I want to thank you that uh, people are crafting arguments and developing thoughts from your word. Lord, and I pray that your spirit would cause us to do that more and more, to be in your word and to think biblically about our own lives, uh, about the world around us, um, and that you would always drive us to the by what standard question when we answer anything about anything. Lord, that you would remind us that we are always appealing to a standard. And we know that that is your word. And so I pray that no matter what complex question we're working through, I pray that it would be by the standard of your word. That you would give us such a confidence in your scriptures that we know that with dependence on you and with diligent study, the answers are there in your word. I pray that we would have that confidence. I pray that we would not get distracted and start appealing to other authorities, but that it would always be from your word. Lord, thank you for a group of people here that are committed to your word. Drive that deep into our hearts. Lord, and even as we look at the specific question this morning, Lord, we thank you that you set your saving love on us, that even before the fall happened, you set personal saving love on all your children. Lord, and then you sent your son to die personally not just for some nameless, faceless program, but personally, that we can say with Paul that it's not I who live, but you who live in us. Lord, that is true on a personal level. And then I thank you that your spirit brought that to our hearts at the appropriate time, whether that was when we were very small and we don't even remember, or whether that has been later in life through a very marked conversion. Thank you for saving us in the way that you have. And I pray that that would be contagious as we go out into the world Share the gospel with others that they too may know the sweetness of fellowship with you.
Lord, I ask for your spirit this morning as we move to corporate worship. I pray that you would strengthen us through music, through the preaching of your word, uh, through the fellowship that you have called us to be part of. Thank you for your kindness, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. <laughs> 